You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series on Haggai, presented by Steve Coleman, an elder and member of New Hope Chapel's teaching team. (laughs) And let me open with a question. Have you ever seen a situation where good news was horrifying and treated with sadness, where everybody got upset? doesn't usually happen. We're in a series on Haggai about the Jews returning to the land of Israel after their captivity in Babylon. They experienced a mixed reaction. They had that kind of experience when they started rebuilding the temple. We read in the book of Ezra that all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord when they saw the foundation of the house of the Lord. They had returned. That was their express goal, was to rebuild the temple. And so they laid this foundation And they had a big event. The priests all dressed in their priestly garments. They had the trumpets going. uh, And and the people saw the foundation of the temple. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud. The passage goes on to say, no one could distinguish the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. What an incredible sight that must have been as each group was sort of realizing the reaction of the other. Well, what upset them so much? Well, this event serves as part of the backdrop for this second message in the book of Haggai. And we're going to talk about what got them upset and why that reaction in just a minute. But let's refresh ourselves on the context of the book. I always like to make sure that we know uh, what we're talking about when we, get, when we start talking about history and the people of Israel. This is a 2,000-year timeline Uh, Right here is the changeover from the Old Testament period to the New Testament period. First century A.D. is right here. And so this extends back to the 20th century B.C. or B.C.E. And I've put the books of the Bible along in here so you can can get a sense of, of how the history flows. You know, the first set of books in the Bible are the narrative, the history. And Genesis, of course, I'm starting this timeline with when Abraham dies. Well, that occurs can't remember the chapter, but sort of midway through Genesis or so. And so the book of Genesis, the first half of the book of Genesis occurs much earlier than this because it goes all the way back. The beginning of it starts with talking about creation. Uh, But Genesis runs uh, to about this point, about 1800 B.C. or B.C.E. Then you have the stories, uh, the account from Exodus through Deuteronomy, and when the people entered the land was right at the beginning of the book of Joshua, and you can read about that story there. We did a series on the book of Judges. Joshua and Judges occurs during this period of Israel's time up until uh, the era of Samuel and, and the beginning of the kings, uh, starting with Saul. Uh, and so at this point, you have David's reign, which was the beginning of the grand period of Israel's history. Uh, David viewed as like the ultimate in monarchs, greatly loved by the people. David was very interested in building a temple for God. 
up to that point, beginning here in, in these, this experience in the desert, coming out of Egypt, the exodus from Egypt, and on through uh, this period of time, through Joshua and Judges, and into Samuel, the, um, the worship of Israel was centered around the tabernacle, which was basically tent-like structures with the Ark of the Covenant uh, in there where they would, they would worship. So David was quite interested in building a temple for God, and um, God said, David, no, you're not going to do it, but your son Solomon's going to build the temple. And so Solomon builds a temple uh, here, uh, Solomon was known for his great wisdom. He was also known for his great wealth. Remember the story of the Queen of Sheba uh, coming to take a look at Solomon's wealth. Uh, he, and he spared no expense. Uh, you can read the accounts of this temple that he built. And the Jews call it the first temple. And things uh, moved along from there. Through a series of kings, uh, Israel had its troubles, its good kings, its bad kings, and... Um, What happened is Israel fell ultimately into judgment, and right about here, he had the people of Israel uh, carried off into captivity. The top portion of the land was carried off by the Assyrians some years earlier. The bottom portion, called Judea, which involved primarily about three tribes, but uh, there were folks from from every tribe there as well. But they were carried off by the Babylonians, and... um, you remember the book of Daniel, one of the prophets. You know, the prophets sort of prophesied all through this period, and Daniel was a guy who was carried off as part of that captivity. And with that carrying off, Babylon ransacked Israel, and the temple was destroyed, that first temple. So we have this little gap here, because the end of the book of Second Chronicles sort of ends with the Babylonian captivity, then there's that period of time that they're away in captivity. And we start with this set of books. And I couldn't even fit the names in there. But that's where you start after Second Chronicles. You have, is Ruth next? Ruth, Ezra, Nehemiah. And, um, or is it Ezra, Nehemiah, Ruth? Ezra's first, thank you. So you have three books of narrative that talk about this period of time when they come back from the captivity. And that's why that story in Ezra is there. And you have three prophets that are also this time. But what we're going to do before we... This is the wrong clicker. What we're going to do is we're going to take a look at this period of time, blow it up, because that's the period of time we're talking about in Israel's history. So we've blown this period up. So now uh, this represents 5th century B.C. or B.C.E. And here's, of course, the 1st century And we have all the New Testament books being written here, the birth of Jesus coming here. And so we're in this this time. The first group returns under Zerubbabel. And they're returning because right here on our timeline is when that destruction of the temple happened, the first temple. So uh, the, the book we're looking at, Haggai, well, here are the historical books. Ezra written here, Nehemiah here, Esther occurs historically somewhere in this period um, during that time. And that's the end of the historical narratives until you get to the Gospels. You have three prophets writing in this time period. There's Haggai. That's the book we're studying now, this one in red. The one in white there is Zechariah. And the one in white here, about a generation later, is the book of Malachi, the last prophet written in the Old Testament. 
And then what happens is you have this period of about 400 years that's called the intertestament period. It's called the 400 silent years. Silent because nobody's writing. You end with Malachi, and the next thing you read, if you flip your page in your Bible, is the book of Matthew, and starting in with the, the New Testament books. So that's where we are, sort of historically. Uh, we're talking about this little period of time in here. And all these books are, have some interesting stories to tell about these people returning from the land. We have one interesting story. It's driven by the prophecies of Haggai. And we heard last week from uh, Scott as he, he talked about the people. They had laid this foundation. They had this reaction that I talked about. And then they had some opposition and they stopped building. And the, 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 that foundation just laid there until the prophecy of Haggai. Uh, when God said, get to work building my house because my house is in ruins. And the people were galvanized. And uh, what we're reading here in chapter 2 of the book of Haggai now is a prophecy that occurs, and it's specifically dated, but it occurs four weeks after the people get going on the temple. And we read in Haggai 2... We're going to be looking at Haggai 2, 1 through 9. In Haggai 2, beginning of it, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Christ, uh, God is pointing out that they've got the same kind of problem going on. They're looking at this temple as they're building it, and they're saying, this doesn't match up. Israel had a problem here. The temple was central to their identity. The temple of Solomon spared no expense he spared no expense, and Israel at the height of its power and its glory, and, and those heady days, Solomon came up with a magnificent temple. Now here's this group of, uh, this remnant coming back, a, much, a, a relatively small group, and many of them remember just about 60 years ago, prior to that, the temple being destroyed. And that temple certainly had been a dominant feature of the city. We don't know what that temple looked like. A lot of, we have some description, but, and, and many people have set about to speculate on what Solomon's temple might have looked like. So you get drawings like this one, or this one with the great tower in the front, uh, or this too, with again, a very tall porch in the front. But the temple project now, under Zerubbabel, wasn't looking good. They probably cleared the rubble out of the way when they put down the first foundation. But everywhere they look, I'm sure they saw reminders of Solomon's temple and of the devastation that, ha that the Babylonians had caused. The golden days of Israel were behind them. They felt it keenly. And they felt disconnected. Here's this little ragtag band trying to put together a temple. Have you ever felt connected to something bigger? 
or felt a loss of connection to something bigger, it has a big effect on attitude. Uh, when I was in college, uh, I, I managed to purchase a 10-year-old 1965 Mustang. Now, that was a special car. It, uh, for those of you that are young, uh, it doesn't look like much, but you should have seen the other cars in those days. <laughs> this, this was one sharp-looking car. Even 10 years later, it, it, the motor hummed. It, it just drove very smoothly. It, it had some power to it, um, which is always a good feature. And, um, and I enjoyed that car. A year or two after getting it, I parked in our college uh, parking lot, and we had a very wet spring. We had storms. We had some strong storms, and a pine tree, a big pine tree, fell and crushed the roof of it. Yeah, yeah. So with about six inches of water in it, I had it towed to the body shop. <laughs> I, you know what the weeping felt like, didn't you? And, and it towed the body shop, and they hammered out this roof, and they fixed it up and put a new windshield in it and everything. But you know, and it looked pretty good, but you know, it never was the same. Every rainstorm, I get rain coming in from that front left corner, top left corner. Every time I turn a corner, there'd always be a couple of drops that would come down through there. So I'm always getting the floor wet and the carpet, and it, it, was, it was a mess. Um, but it still was a Mustang. Nobody could really tell. <laughs> and I was connected. I had a Mustang. Uh, then a year later, I started to get those great big clouds of smoke coming out the back. The engine had contracted one of those terminal diseases that engines get. And it was, it was dead. So in consulting with my father, I mean, there's a lot of expensive ways to go that you can return a car to its former glory by boring it out. But we didn't have that kind of money. So we went, we had the, the, uh, the car folks go pick up an engine at the junkyard and stick it in that car instead. I don't know what it was from, a Ford Valiant or some other kind of Thing, but it just never, now no more was that smooth engine. There was a rough running engine. It didn't drive the same. It didn't sound the same. Uh, and it just wasn't the same. I was now disconnected from having a 1965 Mustang in all its glory. Well, the temple would never get close to the grandeur of Solomon's temple for Israel. The same kind of thing. Some of the descriptions we have of it, and, and this shows that the interior of the holy place and the holy of holies was cedar wood, and then it was overlaid with gold. Can you imagine? Floors overlaid with gold. And, of course, the holy of holies, the same thing. They never could hope to come up to that level. They didn't have the huge resources David and Solomon had. They had meager resources. The prospects looked bad. And they were in the land. Here they were this remnant of about 50,000 people. That's a little more than the population of Annapolis proper. It's a little less than the population of Bowie, Maryland proper. 
Added to that, the people were tired. This is four weeks after God got them energized to work on the temple. And you could do anything for a week or two. You've got that energy, that enthusiasm, the team spirit, the adrenaline, but it only takes a few weeks, and now you're tired. doesn't seem like such an exciting prospect. This is a dirty process. This is a process that takes effort and energy. So they had that working against them. Also, you know, the crops weren't coming in. Scott, uh, in the first message for Haggai, was telling us they were not prospering. They were having failure in their businesses and their crops. They were not prospering. They were struggling badly economically because they weren't building the temple, God says. And he sets them to go. Well, this is only four weeks later. That hasn't turned around overnight. In addition, this is the 21st day of the seventh month. Seven days into the Feast of Tabernacles. If you remember, that's the Jewish celebration where they would make these booths, the sakat, out in the fields, and they would live in them because, and, and as they brought in the harvest, because that is what they would do. They would live there and they were supposed to remember the, the travelings of Israel in the desert. And how God got them through that. Well, here's this group of people, and there isn't much to bring in. You know, you can imagine the conversation. Well, what have you got in your field? Nothing. What do you have? Well, I got a carrot. You know, it, it just, they, they were struggling. So having this festival where they're supposed to be celebrating God's goodness and the way he takes care of them, they didn't have a lot to see with that. It only, would only have heightened the sense of, the, um, how far Israel had fallen from the days of David and Solomon. So God says, does it seem to you like nothing? Well, he addresses their discouragement. And he says, uh, I didn't put the first part of the verse, but he goes through and lists again the people. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jozadek, the high priest. Then it picks up here. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Be strong, for I am with you. Is that all? No extra help? No armies of a construction battalion from Asia or from Ethiopia? No mounds of gold or silver popping up unexpectedly? Or a replacement for Solomon's temple miraculously materializing overnight? No, just I am with you. And this was my covenant when you came out of Egypt. This was his promise to the people. To Moses, that was the promise. And Moses went back to God early in the Exodus and said, I can't, tell me that you'll go with us because I cannot go. I cannot take these people unless you go with us. And God confirmed that. If you remember, they had that cloud, a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire that would go before them and lead them early in the wanderings. And whenever they, they moved from one place to another, that was God's presence. He identifies it as that. Why this reference to the Exodus 
uh, and where he says, um, I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. Because I think he was, God was connecting back to this Feast of Tabernacles. That's what you're celebrating now, the fact that I am with you and I will take care of you. He's bringing encouragement to bear right on the point that was so sore with them. One of the points. Joshua had the same promise from God. God said, I'll be with you wherever you go. It was emphasized to King David when God was telling him that his kingdom was going to last, he was going to establish his throne forever, that God was with him. And in Isaiah, he promised the Messiah to come would be Emmanuel, and then that is picked up uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, that same promise that Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus goes ahead and promises it to his followers and to us. And he says, I will be with you always. That was his promise to them. I will be with you. And that remains his promise. God's promise to you is his reward. God's promise to you is God. His reward is himself. Is that enough for you? To me, that's a good deal. Because uh, what else is more important than that? I know we get caught in the problems and issues of life. Uh, I have have a degree in counseling and and have spent time counseling folks. And they come in because they've got real problems in their life. And they have problems with their marriage. And and their children uh, are a mess. But what God wants is for them to get focused back on him. It's tempting when you're in that circumstance to say, well, if I do these good things, does that mean the problems will get better? Does that mean my husband will come back? Does that mean my children will straighten out? Does that mean my business will get back on its feet? Or I'm uh, going to be healed? The answer is I don't know. Nobody knows. Because those things aren't promised in Scripture. What's promised is that we will have God. Some people are disillusioned because they feel God has failed them. Because they were expecting this thing or that thing. Or they weren't expecting this. But the promise is, I will be with you. The promise of God himself and a relationship. You know, knowing that changes our perspective. That's what God wants it to do. And uh, your, your viewpoint on things changes perspective. My father-in-law was a brilliant man when it came to identifying all that just very practical wisdom in life. One of the things he told me once was, own a house and nature becomes your enemy. It's true. (laughs) You own a house, and all of a sudden, that pretty ivy that grows, well, it's digging under your siding, pulling it off. You know? Ants, which I've always enjoyed watching ants and watching a a little ant pull a big potato chip, you know, across the ground. But not when they're streaming into my house and gathering in the kitchen. (laughs) And they're hard to get rid of. 
My father-in-law in particular, he had these awnings that came over each of the windows of his house to keep the sun out. But much of the year, they were, they were pushed back and folded up against the side of the house. Well, his problem were the squirrels. They loved getting in there. And they would make a mess. They'd make nests. They'd chew through the canvas of those things. He was a gentle man, but he would shake his fist. <laughs> God wanted Israel's way of thinking affected too. He goes on, after talking about his presence, after talking about the fact that he was with them, uh, to the next set of verses. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Haggai's talking about a future time. God's telling them, yes, I'm giving you a promise about the future. Something good is going to happen here. He talks about the desire of nations is going to come. That peace is going to come. That this temple is going to be filled with glory. And you know what happened? came true after 500 years. We don't have a lot of artist speculations about the Temple of Zerubbabel, the temple built at this time, uh, because there isn't much of a description of it. But there are lots of descriptions about Herod's temple. And that was Zerubbabel's temple. It was a temple that probably was added to and improved as the years went on. But when Herod came on the scene, he was an egomaniac. And he wanted to build something that would make his name last forever. And he, he had fabulous palaces, but he focused on this temple. And he spared no expense at that time in Israel to create a temple. Uh, and he took whatever temple he got, and he enlarged it, and he made it more glorious, and he added the things that were going to make it something special. So there are artist renditions of Herod's temple. Uh, this is one that you'll find. There's a model over in the Holy Land, and that's the, that's the model that, that you'll see there. Um, God used this egomaniacal king to build a place that was breathtaking. That wasn't the real glory of it, though. The real glory of it was when the desire of nations came. When Jesus himself came, he came to that temple. That's the temple he cleansed. That's the temple that he confronted the leaders in when they came to trip him up. And he answered back and established his uh, messiahship. That's the temple that he taught people and he healed people. And he prophesied his own death. And he brought the solution to getting peace with God. And offered a relationship. 
You know, the disciples talk about the Herod's temple with Jesus when they're walking through. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away in Matthew 24. And his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Look at that. Look at the temple. Do you see these things? Jesus asked, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And he pointed in his teachings to himself as the temple of God. And the fact that it was in his death and resurrection that uh, he would provide this ultimate peace and the ultimate fulfillment of what uh, Haggai was talking about in that prophecy. Yes, there was a partial fulfillment 500 years later, something that, that um, the people of Zerubbabel's time could, could look forward to. They didn't have any specifics. But we don't get the ultimate fulfillment of that whole prophecy by Haggai until the end times. Revelation 21, actually, is the fulfillment of that prophecy. But this temple of Zerubbabel, the one that was started by these people and was enlarged by Herod, is the temple that Jews call the second temple. And, of course, that did get destroyed in A.D. 70. Well, through God, I, I, that was, uh, yes, Sorry, I, I missed those. Um, uh, God, through Haggai, let them know that this was coming. And he wanted to encourage them by confirming to them they were part of something much larger. Not simply the large past, but they were part of a sweeping future. And that what they did was important to that. We struggle because we want the immediate payoff. We want to see something now that answers our questions, that makes a difference, that solves our problems. And God did that. He said, I'm with you. But he didn't solve that other problem of building this temple that fell short of Solomon's. He pointed them to the future. He wanted them to change their perspective. The future is where real life happens. What we struggle with here, those things may get solved. They may not get solved uh, here. We, they may not get solved till eternity. But that's the payoff. The believer's home is not on earth, and things don't matter as much here. You can, but we can get God. We can get peace. We can have a profound relationship with him. And it's critical you know, I like maps. Uh, I always have. I enjoy navigating by maps. So I've been a happy guy for the last several decades. My wife, in the last, only in the last decade, has gotten very happy because GPS devices came out. Well, the GPS device is very different from a map. A map is impersonal. A map, you have to know where you are. And you have to know where you want to go then a map is beautiful because it allows you to make decisions and get where you are. The thing about GPS is it knows where you are, so you don't have to. And if you don't know where you are, that's the device for you. And if you tell it where you're going, it tells you the exact way to get there. 
It's personal. It speaks to you and knows exactly the roads to take. It gives you a multifaceted experience that is superior to a map. But without a vital and vibrant relationship with God, even if we've been believers a long time, we can simply be lost on the map. And life can overwhelm us just as easily as anyone else. God still calls us to a deeper, more committed relationship with him. There's much more there for you and I, and it's a better life than we're living now. He's got for us peace. He said to this remnant of Israel, consider your ways. Living on the edges with God, just the edges, is living without peace. And, you know, it doesn't feel good. We feel that uh, rottenness. We feel the lack of peace in our lives. We feel confused and lost. God wants to give us his peace. He wants to give me his peace. He wants to give you his peace. He wants us to know him in a deeper way. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.